This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Eva Benavides. This is a special pop-up episode of Book Public. We talked to Joshua Bennett, who in the last few days has been awarded both a Guggenheim Fellowship and the prestigious Whiting Award. Joshua Bennett is the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. He's the author of three books of poetry and literary criticism, including the poetry collection Ode, which he discussed on a past book public episode back in September. He holds a PhD in English from Princeton University and an MA in Theater and Performance Studies from the University of Warwick, where he was a Marshall Scholar. When we talked to Joshua Bennett several months ago, we discussed a number of topics that we revisit in our most recent conversation, but add to these the fact that he's the recipient of two major literary awards. He was recently awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship from the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation and was just awarded the prestigious Whiting Award. Each individually is a major achievement, but to receive two such awards in the span of only a few days made us want to check in again with Joshua Bennett. Here's my conversation with Joshua Bennett, and you'll also hear him read some poetry from his book, Ode. Frederick Douglass is dead, and might very well remain that way, despite the best attempts of our present overlord to resurrect him without a single living Black mother's permission. If he should come and be recognized as anything other than the muted whisper of a body interred, I wish his return as some strange and ungovernable terror, a ghost story turned live in direct ectoplasm without warning. Frederick in the White House kitchens, Frederick in the faucets, Frederick posted up at every corner of the Oval Office, shredding documents invisibly, a blade in each of his 18 laser hands. Go off, his more radical undead colleagues will exclaim. You better tell that man to keep your name out his mouth. But Frederick Douglass doesn't say a thing. Not yet. He's waiting for you and me, my grandmother says. Frederick Douglass is irrevocably dead and refuses to ride until we are ready, until our prayers are knives or sheets of flame. Hear us, O oh beloved fugitive saint. Defer the rain. Grant us the strength of a rage we can barely fathom. Make us brave as the flock in the fist of a storm. Unmoor every melody they built from our screams. Steady our dreams. Keep us warm. You are so articulate with your hands, she says. And it's the first time the word doesn't hurt. I respond by citing something age inappropriate from Aristotle, drawing mostly from his idea that hands are what make us human, every gesture the embodiment of our desire for invention or care. And I'm not sure about that last part, but it seemed like a polite response at the time, and I'm not accustomed to not needing to fight. If my hands speak with conviction, then blame my stupid mouth for its lack of weaponry or sweetness. I clap when I'm angry because it's the best way to get the heat out. Pop says that my words are bigger than my mouth, but these hands can block a punch, build a bookcase, feed a child, and when's the last time you saw a song do that? Elegy for the Modern School. This much I can prove. 
We were black and unfinished in the Harlem of old, a mass of naps and Vaseline knees before the promise of faster Wi-Fi and craft beer was code for what it is code for. And my mother would drop us off in our 89 Toyota Camry, its cool steel flesh the color of a half-dead rhododendron. And my big sister would hold on to my left hand, which fit in hers like a quarter's worth of peanut chews back then until the bell bid us scatter. I was a good boy and thus defined by a certain lust for solitude, the countless ways I learned to scream, don't touch. This was all I knew of the world I had yet to name, its utter indifference, its physical laws, my sister a kind of atmosphere, more God or feeling than another small, finite body like mine that could be known well or else unmade. Miss Cherry owned a ruler long as my daddy's entire forearm, called it Redeemer, kept the instrument at the front of our classroom so as to enrich our already budding sense of the apocalyptic, would wrap our knuckles and backsides with it like a blacksmith in love with his labor anytime we dared behave as if we were, in her words, outside our natural minds. Our parents thought this little more than rational extension of the age-old wisdom when it comes to rearing the hunted. I cannot keep you alive, but will see you die at my hands long before the day I let the law erase your name from the ledger of the living. And so it was that in songs and parables long given to the tide of Reagan and concrete bleeding blackness all over and wayward shots meant for men themselves too young to know the scent of cells and aspiration rotted through, we learned how we arrived at the underside of modernity, children only while we were held and honed within those broad brick walls, a place for us to be unburied and yet unashamed, unassailable, unaware of an entire order lingering like lions at the door. America will be after Langston Hughes. I am now at the age where my father calls me brother when we say goodbye. Take care of yourself, brother. He whispers a half beat before we hang up the phone and it's as if some great bridge has unfolded over the air between us. He is 71 years old. He was born in the throat of Jim Crow, Alabama, one of 10 children, their bodies side by side in the kitchen each morning, like a pair of hands exalting. Over breakfast, I ask him to tell me the hardest thing about going to school back then, expecting a history I have already memorized. Boycotts and attack dogs, fire hoses, Bull Connor in his personal tank, candy paint shining white as a slaver's ghost. He says, honestly, probably having to read the Canterbury Tales. He says, eating lunch alone. Now I hear the word America and think first of my father's loneliness of the hands holding the pens that stabbed him as he walked through the hallway, unclenched palms settling onto a wooden desk, taking notes, trying to pretend the shame didn't feel like an inheritance you say democracy, 
And I see the men holding documents that sent him off to war a year later, Motown blaring from a country boy's bunker as napalm scarred the sky into jigsaw patterns, his eyes open wide as the blooming blue heart of the light bulb in a Crown Heights basement where he and my mother will dance for the first time, their bodies swaying like rockets in the impossible dark. And yes, I know that this is more than likely not what you mean when you sing Liberty, but it is the only kind I know or can readily claim the times where those hunted by history are underground and somehow still daring to love what they cannot hold or fully fathom when a stranger is not a threat but the promise of a different ending. I woke up this morning and there were men on television lauding a wall big enough to box out an entire world. Families torn with the stroke of a pen, the right to live, little more than some garment that can be stolen or reduced to cinder at a tyrant's whim. My father knows this, grew up knowing this, witnessed firsthand the fire bonds, the clan, multiple messiahs love soaked and shot through, somehow still believes in this grand blood-stained experiment, still votes, still prays that his children might make a life unlike any he has ever seen. He looks at me like the promise of another cosmos. And I never know what to tell him. All of the books in my head have made me cynical and distant, but there's a choir in him that calls me forward. My disbelief built as it is from the bricks of his belief, not in any America you might see on network news or hear heralded before the start of a football game, but in the quiet power of Sam Cooke singing that he was born by a river that remains unnamed, that he runs alongside to this day, some vast and future country, some nation within a nation, black as candor, loud as the sound of my father's unfettered laughter over cheese eggs and coffee, his eyes shut tight as armories, his fists finally unclenched as if he were invincible. So I want to return to three topics that we discussed the last time we spoke some seven months ago now. Mm. One of the things we discussed was the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. We were all still in complete shock about the way the world watched on television as George Floyd was killed on the street. And you and I talked about the protests as some indicator of uh, a looming change. And then in the interim, there have been too many more lives lost, including Dante Wright. Hmm. What can you tell us about what you have considered regarding that hopefulness from just a few months ago um, to what, what we are dealing with now? What has happened to that hopefulness? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's complicated, and I, and I want to pull on some language from James Baldwin, right, who says that he was an optimist, you know, to paraphrase, says he's an optimist because who will tell the children there is no hope, right? So for me, any kind of Black hopefulness, right, or Black optimism from another angle is always the kind that has to contend with the material realities of the world we live in, right? And within that world, and especially within the United States, right, we have an understanding. I think Black Americans have an understanding 
that uh, police violence is a longstanding part of American culture, right? Especially the way in which police create um, environments of sort of everyday terror and hostility, right? For black people, right? Um, for black children, um, whether that be in schools or, or once they leave the school building or even when they're, they're in their homes. And so, yeah, I mean, just thinking about sort of Dante Right, thinking about George Floyd, thinking about Breonna Taylor, thinking about Eric Garner, thinking about Sean Bell, um, who was killed, you know, when I was quite young, um, thinking about Amadou Diallo, okay, who was killed when I was even younger. These are the names uh, that have been ringing through my mind, thinking about Trayvon Martin, right? These are the names that have been ringing through my mind for over a decade. And so, I think part of what needs to happen now is that we all need to have a much more honest conversation about what we believe we desire and deserve, right, from the criminal legal system. Um, and we need to rethink how we imagine safety, security, and justice. Last time we discussed what you refer to as the degradation of language that persisted with the previous president it's a degradation, not of the standard variety of the language, but of all vernaculars, all varieties, all sincere forms of expression where speakers hope to communicate or commiserate. Um, and daily communication devolved to untruths, misinformation, the profane stripping away of anything like communication or sincerity or compassion. It might be too early to tell right now what kind of trajectory we are mostly on in this area, but I feel strongly that when there are professors, teachers, writers of color communicating through literature and art and giving space to all stories, we stand a chance to resume a kind of a path that work in progress, always a work in progress toward basic, respectful rapport. Mm. What do you think about this idea that maybe we're clearing a path back to something that's more like respectful communication? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it right there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to my mind, it's always happening, right? It's always in this kind of ongoing critical contention, right, with the with the dominant language, with the dominant grammar for how we're supposed to imagine beauty uh, and the possibility of living and dying with dignity as human beings. So I love what you said for many reasons, but in no small part because you're imagining a kind of collective response, right, to whatever the official sort of state uh, language or stance or position is. And I think that's the way we always need to be thinking and dreaming, no matter who the president is right? Mm -hmm. Whether they look like us or not, right? Whether they ostensibly share our values, our primary responsibility, I think, is to each other, right? It's to future generations, right? Uh, To the future of our species, but to the future of life on earth, right? To our planet, right? Um, Which we've inherited. And I, I think, that's one of the the major social roles of poetry in the present day, right? Is to bear witness, and for me, in that regard, I'm, I'm really pulling from the legacy of, of people like June Jordan, who wasn't just a brilliant poet, but a, a true polymath, right? Was teaching workshops at Church of the Open Door for children and publishing that work in an anthology, right? Gwendolyn Brooks, 
um, in a Presbyterian church basement in Chicago teaching young people poetry, right? And, and uh, her own commitment to public recitations um, of poetry by young people, I think it it leaves uh, not just a kind of legacy, but a, a call, right, for us all in the moment, which is how are we thinking about the most vulnerable among us? How are we committing our lives to those people? And, and that, that commitment needs to be multifarious and it needs to come from a lot of different parts of our communities. You've already named a number of them, right? It needs to come mm -hmm. from our teachers, from our artists, from our local politicians, from our houses of worship, right? Mm -hmm. And I think too, it needs to come from our entertainers, right? From our screenwriters, the people who are helping create the images, right? That flash across the screens we spend so much time uh, in front of now, right? There needs to be a kind of collective communal commitment to a vision of a, a brighter day, you know? And, and I think that is something we're always actively building together, but it happens in, in pockets, you know? It's not always on Main Street and it's not always in the, in the mainstream, mm -hmm. right? So we have to be attentive. Uh, we have to listen closely uh, and we have to make room for one another, right? Room for new voices, new light, new joy. Speaking of, last time we spoke, you were about to become a father. <laughs> Yeah. How is everybody doing? Yeah, we're all right. You know, my my boy, uh, August, he's, he's downstairs with his mom right now, my wife, Pam, um, without whom, you know, I could not do uh, just about anything, you know. So it's it's been an incredible, it's been, I mean, he's turning six months in, a, in four days. So it's a, it's quite surreal. He sits up on his own now. His first, first tooth uh, just came in a couple of days ago. Um, what else? I mean, we have very specific videos we like to watch every day, like uh, Ponte Tus Zapatos is like his, <laughs> you know, that's his jam. So we watch that just about every morning, you know, uh, Old McDonald had a farm. And uh, that that rhythm, you know, has been transformative for me, to mm -hmm. be honest, right? Every single day I wake up with my little boy um, and we dance to music. We watch videos together. I read poetry to him and that love has been redemptive, you know. It's um, it's completely rearranged the way I think about my priorities, um, and it's, it's like radicalized my politics in certain ways. You know, <laughs> it just made me think very differently, um, especially about all sorts of like climate, you know, and uh, through the economic structure of the country mm -hmm. we live in, and and what's being done to support people who who want to build families, right? Um, what sort of resource, I mean, I'm so thankful, you know, um, for the support I have from my community, the support I have from my home institution, but I recognize, of course, that those sorts of resources aren't generally dispersed. So I think having a kid um, and seeing how complex it is on the day-to-day, -day, not just financially, but psychologically, I've really been thinking a lot about sort of parental leave policy in the U.S. and and sort of what can be done collectively to help more people make a livable life, not just for themselves, but before our children, right? Um, but yeah, to the point, it's been a joy. Um, I'm happy every day. <laughs> I'm very tired. You know, I haven't <laughs> slept a full night in months. So I, I worry sometimes when I step into interviews like this that I won't be perhaps as quick as I once was. That might just be pure nostalgia. But um, <laughs> e even within the sleep fog, you know, there are so many uh, beautiful, bright moments that I have every day with August. I've been thinking a lot about your family, uh, your wife and your child, but also your grandmother, your mother, your father, your sister, the, all of the, uh, the folks that you've 
you've talked about, and I've remembered the story about your mom as your plus one when you performed at the White House for President Obama, um, your parents, and how you said that they met at a club, but but it was really the U.S. Postal Service that sort of brought them together. Just so many stories about your family because here you are, the recipient of two major awards, a Guggenheim and a Whiting. For folks who might not know, these are major awards. They are rare. They are precious for any recipient in the ways that they support literature and creative writing and the work that you do. What does it mean to you to be the recipient of these awards right now after the things that I've asked you about language, about our country, about black lives, about being a father, about being a son, about being a husband? Um, what does it mean to you? Mm. It's always meant a great deal to me to be a part of a, of a tradition. You know, I was born into a certain vision of the Black expressive tradition. I was raised in the Black church. As you've already said, I have a very tight-knit family culture. And so uh, I think when I first got the news, so I'll just tell you about when I first got the news about the the whiting, you know, one of the first things I said was, oh my goodness, we can fix the roof now. Right? <laughs> um, and it, there's this moment where it's like, oh man, I'm becoming my dad, you know? <laughs> I, I won this incredible award. And the first thing I thought about was, uh, was home repairs. But I mean, that's that's part of what's on my mind, right? Is that the, the kind of support these awards offer is in no small part about making everyday life easier so you can focus on the writing, right? Um, I also want to say that these awards would not have been possible, you know, again, without the support of, of my wife and, and son, but also the communities that raised me, right? Yonkers, New York, the Bronx, uh, Messiah Baptist Church, the Baptist Worship Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, the Africana Studies Department at the University of Pennsylvania, where, you know, as a freshman, I discovered the beauty of Black studies, you know, and the idea that Black literature, Black music, Black performance, Black history was something you could study in college. I mean, that was a revolutionary idea for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, all my children's books, you know, had sort of Black characters, Black historical figures at the center. Like I was reading about Benjamin Banneker, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, George Washington Carver. Right. But as I, I grew older, the idea that I could commit to the study of of the poems and the novels and the plays that those people had written as a matter of a sort of academic study, that 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 was astonishing to me. And so part of what these awards mean for me now is that I have the responsibility uh, to really share that brilliance with a, a larger audience, the brilliance of my tradition. Right. To at every turn, name the ancestors who help uh, make me possible, you know, um, and that I think really give us instruments to, to deal with the present moment and to deal with it honestly, right? Because that, that's something else Baldwin says, that love is a, is a war, love is a growing up, right? And I think Black literature helps us to grow up, helps us to look in the mirror and tell the truth about what we know about our experiences. Um, but it also asks us, I think, to, to hold on to hope, um, but a hope that is, um, that is not separate, right, from telling the truth, right? Because that's the only way we're gonna get to a future worth having, is being more honest with ourselves and each other. Well, we are so happy for you and we congratulate you on these well-deserved honors. And thank you so much for joining me today, Joshua Bennett. Of course, it was an honor and pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Joshua Bennett is the author of Ode, 
He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Whiting Award for 2021. His work of narrative nonfiction, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, is forthcoming from Knopf. This has been Pop-Up Book, a special midweek episode of Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>